Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Well, let me just, first of all, if some of you don't know who I am, my name is Jim Augustine. I am the pastor of outreach and small groups here at Corner Bible Church, and I am really excited to be here uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is uh, the fact that I get to speak to you this morning as we close out the book of Haggai. Um, so as we, if you're new to, with us this morning, uh, maybe you don't know where the book of Haggai is. So Davis really helped us in the first week uh, to, to know where this book is. So if you don't know where Haggai is, let me just remind you, go to Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. And then go backwards to Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi. And uh, that was a joke. Um, not a very good one either. Anyway, um, and then Zechariah, and then the very next book is Haggai. And this little book is about two chapters long, and those chapters really aren't even all that long either. So I don't know if we call it Mount, uh, Haggai so much uh, of a book as more maybe a flyer or a pamphlet or maybe even a tract, right? How many of you remember tracts or still know what tracts are? Okay. Uh, the younger ones are like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about land? What? Anyway. Um, but this morning, uh, as, we, as we look at this little book or pamphlet or tract or whatever it is we want to call it, uh, there is a very, very deep and very, very important truth that we need to grasp. Uh, and one of the best ways for us to understand that truth is to understand where Haggai is writing in historical context. And I just want to jump back and uh, talk a little bit about that. Davis covered that really well in our first week in this book. But I just want to remind you of, of where we are historically. So if you remember, the nation of Israel um, split in two. Uh, right after the reign of Solomon and when his son became king, he wasn't very good. And as a result, the kingdom of Israel split into two nations. The northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north were called Israel. And the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, they were called Judah. Okay? And Israel was... How do I put this delicately? They were awful, okay? They were awful in the fact that all of most, well, most all of their kings were terrible. They all followed after other gods. They all wanted nothing to do with Jehovah. And so as a result, Israel was cap captured by Assyria, and they were taken off to exile. And Judah remained because they had a few, and I, I do mean a few, kings who... Uh, did it right, who honored God, who wanted to seek God's face and, and seek his blessing on the kingdom. And so Judah lasted a little bit longer. But when Judah uh, was finally done, when God was finally done with, with Judah's uh, apostasy and, and running after other gods, small g, um, he sent the nation of Babylon in 597 BC. And if I get the dates wrong, um, check with Davis, because he knows what he's talking about. I, I'm... You know, I looked this up online, and if Google is right, then I'm right. If Google is wrong, then I'm wrong. So, uh, but the reason, but uh, they they were exiled because, for a very specific reason, because God, their God, 
wanted them to come back to him and to remember who they were created to be. Namely, his chosen people set apart to worship the one true God. And so they were sent off into exile. And so Babylon held Israel and their exiles for about 57 years. And in the, in the year 539 BC, the Persian Empire came in and took over Babylon. They conquered Babylon. And now all of these exiles are part of the Persian Empire. And so just over a year after that, the, the king of Persia decides, okay, I'm going to let some of these people who have been exiled for 50 seven, almost 60 years, and let them go back to their homeland. And so these people come back into Israel and begin living there again. And then 18 years later, the book of Haggai is written. So these, this remnant who has come back to Israel has been in Israel for 18 years, and Haggai then comes and challenges them. He says, look, dudes, and, and that's probably not the phrasing he used. I, you know, anyway, he, he would say, hey, guys, listen, you guys are so busy about building your nice, fancy houses. But look at the temple. Look at this temple where you come and you 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 want to worship God, but you aren't putting the kingdom of God first. This is what Haggai says to them in chapter one. And so to their credit. The remnant, when they hear this message from the Lord through the mouth of Haggai, they say, oh my goodness, we need to fix this. And so they begin building the temple. And and their, their reaction is exactly what you would hope would be the reaction of the people of the Lord. And they begin doing what God asks them to do. They begin to make the kingdom of God their priority. But in chapter 2, as we move on to chapter 2, we see them becoming discouraged. Why? Because the glory, the physical glory, the physical beauty of the temple that they are building compared to what it used to be 60 years earlier before it was destroyed is garbage, basically. It doesn't even begin to compare to what Solomon's temple looked like. And there were those in their midst who remembered that temple. And as they looked at what they were building, they got discouraged. And God came to them and said and reminded them, Do not be afraid. Keep on going. I am with you. I am the one who will bring about the results here. And also remember that you are my chosen people. Then God comes in chapter 2 through Haggai and he challenges the people once again to remember where they've come from, okay? So he does this, and as David uh, Kroc shared with us last week, he does this through a series of questions directed to the priests about ceremonial cleanness, purity, and how sin affects everything that we do when we allow it to come in contact with our life. And God reminds the people that he is not finished with them because he says, look, even though you messed up in the past and you have messed up big time, even though you've gone through all that and you remember what it was like to to eat your fill but still be hungry, to drink your fill and still be thirsty, to, to make all of this money and yet lose it somehow and you don't even realize what's going on, it is because you didn't put my kingdom first. Now you are putting my kingdom first and so put 
the seed that is still in the barn in the ground and watch what I do. This is what God is doing in the book of Haggai. And so that brings us to where we are today in these last four verses of the book of Haggai. And we see here that there is a message that is intended for a person. And we are going to see what God intended for that person and what God intends for us this morning. Let me read it. This is Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, reading through the end of the chapter. It says, The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day, 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for who you are and for what you are doing, not only in this time before Christ as we read from the book of Haggai and as we see what your word is to this one man, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, but Lord, also when we see what you are doing in and among us as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who want to seek your kingdom first. I pray, Lord, that our eyes would be opened, that our hearts would be softened, that our minds would comprehend and understand, and that our wills would bend to your will, that we might see your kingdom come and your will be done here on this earth just as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth would not be my words this morning. Pray that you would take them and that you would use them in the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish in our lives today. For the glory and honor of Jesus. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen. So in this final section of the book of Haggai, we see God directing a message to a specific person. And I love this guy's name, and if I could have gotten away with it, I would have tried to name one of my kids Zerubbabel. But I couldn't get away with it. But Zerubbabel is a great name, and uh, if you want... Anyway... We won't go there. But Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. He, had, he was among the exiles who came back with the remnant, and he has been kind of uh, leading the people politically. He has been uh, watching out for the people. We see his name uh, appear uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah a couple times, and we see how the, 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 uh, the nation of Israel is, is once again becoming a, a, a kingdom, a nation, And as God's people have responded 
to God's word and have walked in obedience to it. Now he wants to give Zerubbabel an encouragement. As the leader of the people, he is saying, look, I have something specifically for you to remember and to understand. And it's important for us as we understand it, what God is saying to Zerubbabel, he's going to also be saying something to us. So let me first of all share with you what God is saying to Zerubbabel, and then hopefully we can maybe apply it to our own lives. Does that sound like a plan? All right, so here we go. So we begin here by God saying, look, Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Here's what God is saying to Zerubbabel. He says, I am about to move. I am about to do something that's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Here is, when you, when you hear that word, or when I hear that word anyway, I, I think of the term shake up, right? So like when you're at a job and someone new comes in, right? A new boss, a new CEO, a new head of your department, a new HR person, whatever. You, you begin to think, okay, there's going to be a shake up. For a while, things are going to be weird. Things are going to be different. The way we do things might change. The way our, our people react to, to policies might change. All these different things might change. And this is what God is saying to Zerubbabel. Look, guys, you have put your faith in me. You have put my kingdom in the priority where it ought to be. Now things are going to change. And he is telling Zerubbabel this. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Not only that... Verse 22, he says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. Now, understand, what is it that that God wants from his people? He wants his people to put his kingdom first. So when they do that, God now says, okay, now that you have put my kingdom first, watch what I'm going to do to all these other kingdoms. All these other kingdoms, I am going to overthrow I'm going to turn them upside down. I'm going to dump them out. I'm going to take care of them. Why? Because I'm God and I can and because you have obeyed me and now I'm going to honor you for obeying me by doing what I am going to do. Not only that, it says, I am going to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. So what does that mean? Well, okay, so the throne is the symbol of what? It's a symbol of authority. The authority that these other kingdoms have is about to go away. And the strength of the kingdom is their power. So the power of those kingdoms in and among you, Israel, is going to be destroyed. He then gives us a glimpse as to how he's going to do that. Look at this. He says, I will overthrow the chariots and their riders. Question, where does the power of a kingdom come from? Its army, yeah. The power, the power to exercise the authority of the throne comes from the army. And what is the representation of the army? In this case, it's the chariots. The chariots and the horses, the chariots and the riders. And again, he says, later on, he says, and the horses and their riders shall go down as well. So not only is the apparatus of the army of the strength going to fall apart in the chariot, but also those who 
drive the chariots are going to go away. I'm going to, they're going, God says it this way, they're going down. That's probably not exactly how he said it. But it would be cool if that's how he said it. They're going down, right? Just like we thought the Packers were going down. Never mind, we won't go there. Sorry, sorry, Lions fans, sorry. I love you. Okay. But look at this, right? So not only are the chariots going to be overthrown, not only are the horses going to be going down, but the riders as well. And look at what it says. Look what God says here. Everyone by the sword of his brother. Here's something that I absolutely love about God. As you read the books, the, the, the history books, as you read like uh, Exodus and Numbers and, and, and as you look at the book of Judges and as you look at uh, the books of First and Second Samuel and the First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, God taking care of Israel by causing the enemy combatants to begin to kill each other. Here is a really great example of that. Probably one you haven't heard of yet. But in the book of, I believe it's First Chronicles, there is a, there is a, a, a tale or a, or a story told there where the king uh, of, of Judah is sent a letter by three or four different kings of kingdoms, and they send a letter to him basically saying, we're going to wipe you out. We are gathered together. We are going to come down and we are going to take you out. And this king is scared to death and he begins to pray and he he does the right thing. He calls the people together and they all gather at the temple and they cry out to God, God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And here's what God says. This is hilarious. I love this. God says to, to the king, okay, you're going to assemble the army. You're going to assemble the 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 the, the the horses and, and the riders and, the, and all the soldiers. And then what I want you to do is I want you to take the, the temple choir and I want you to put them in the front. And I want them to start singing as you march out to meet this army. Now, I don't know about you. Look, I love our praise team, right? They're great. But I'm not sure that coming at a seasoned army with guitars and drums and a keyboard is the way to go as a military strategy. But God says, that's what I want you to do. And, there, and this, this army is camped in this, in this valley, and you go down there and just do it that way. And the king trusts God, and he goes down. And as, he, as, they, near, as they near the valley, as they crest the hill to look down in the valley, when they look down in the valley, the entire army is dead. Because God came and confused them and they began to fight each other and they were all gone. This is what would come to mind when Haggai says to Zerubbabel, they will all go down, every one by the sword of his brothers. This is the God we serve. This is the God Zerubbabel serves. This is the God we serve. Now look at what it says here next. It says that God says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. 
Is anybody, I mean, do you know what a signet ring is? This is my, this is my class ring. I wore it today on purpose. Uh, when, I, when I bought this, I, I just thought it was really cool, right? But it turns out that this is actually a signet ring. And, and I went to Moody Bible Institute, just like Davis. And uh, I'm sorry he had to leave because I wanted to rub this in. I mean, uh, show, him, show him this really cool uh, class ring I got. Um, but, but on the front is, is, a, is the Moody Arch. And if you're familiar with uh, Moody at all, one of, the, one of their big things is the, the big archway that you enter into the plaza. And so on the signet ring hat here is, is an arch with a the, with the Bible. It's kind of Moody's like logo, if you will. Right, and then it says Moody Bible and Student around the top. So what this does, and and what I wanted to show you that, now this this ring gives me no authority over Moody Bible Institute, which is sad because it would be awesome. If, no, I'm kidding. Anyway, but but the signet ring in these days was the symbol of the king. It was the symbol of the authority of the king, and so if something had the seal of the king, and they would take. When they would write letters or when they would, would uh, sign documents, they would take wax and, and drip some hot wax on there and they would press the ring into the wax so that the seal of the ring and the sign of the ring was on the document. And what that would do is that it would be the sign that this document is from the king. It has the authority of the throne behind it. It was used to confirm the authenticity of the message that was being sent, right? And so this message that, that God is giving to Zerubbabel is this. Zerubbabel, you are going to be like my signet ring. I am giving you my authority to lead these people. And you are going to do that. I am going to use you to do what needs to be done. And look what else it says. It says, I will make you like a signet ring. Look at this last bit. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God is going to use Zerubbabel because he has chosen him. And he will use him. And this is the message that comes to him as a bit of encouragement for the days to come. And that's where the book ends. So as we consider, as a church, here in the 21st century, as we consider where we are in terms of putting God's kingdom as the priority of our church, or even the priority of our own individual lives, what does that look like? What is the application? What can we take from these four verses that will help us to continue to keep God's kingdom first? The first thing that we need to understand is that God is on the move. God has not stopped moving. He has never ceased to do his work. In fact, Jesus said in the first century when he was on the earth, he says, my father is always busy working and I'm busy doing his work as well. God never stops. God keeps going. God is not active even or God is not inactive even when he it seems to us that he's not moving that he's not doing anything God is still at work God has not created this world just to leave it to its own devices God didn't create mankind and say hey see you later I'm out have fun figuring it out 
He is here with us. God's presence. Listen to me. God's presence is here right now in this room. God's presence is here right now next to you. God right now is here. And he is not silent. He is at work. Another thing that we understand here when we, when we understand that God is about to move is to understand that God is in control. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, Jesus uh, is described as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That through Jesus, all things were created, created by him and for him, and that in him all things hold together. The idea here is that Jesus, that God, the Son, God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, that together there is a control over the events, control over the, over the, uh, the physical apparatus of this world, that God has got it under control. And so often in our life, we are walking around like, God, what's going on? We freak out, don't we? I, I, I would almost venture to guess that there are some in this room who freaked out Wednesday night. All these people are coming to my house. How am I going to fix all this food? Or, or my house isn't clean. You got to help me clean my house. Or maybe even some wives said to their husbands, will you stop watching football and come help me? You know, we're always freaking out over something. But God is always in control. Even when it seems like everything is out of control, even when your life seems to be flying off the handle, even when your health is in question, even when your job security isn't all that secure, even when all of the things that you've built with your own two hands begin to crumble and fall and all of that, even when the world is trying to tear you apart, friends, listen, God is still in control. Be encouraged. God is on the move. God is in control. But not only that, God is using you, Christian. God is using you like his signet ring today in the 21st century. Let me explain. You, Christian, true follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, you have all the authority in, in heaven and on earth at your disposal. What? Let me say it again. As a follower of Jesus, you have all the authority of heaven and earth at your disposal. Let me explain what, why I believe that. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus says about five things in these verses. Number one, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus, not me, Jim, Jesus, okay? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus saying this. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? That's the second thing. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So we have these five things, right? 
that Jesus says to his disciples, and I believe to all of us, as a result, at the end of his ministry here on this earth, in the end of Matthew chapter 28, he says these five things. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything, and I am with you always. Now, here's what is cool about this, these five things. The mission are the middle three. That's what we are called to do. The awesome truth is that all authority in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus and he is always with us. So if the one who has all the authority in heaven and earth is always with us, guess what? All the authority in heaven and on earth is always with you. You have that authority. When you ask in Jesus' name, when you ask according to God's will, these are, the, these are the qualifiers that Jesus gives us in his word. But we have that authority as we walk in this life. Secondly, just as a signet ring validates the message of the document, so we, when we live out our faith in Jesus... Our faith in action validates the message of the cross. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, James says, What good is it, brothers, if you have faith but don't have works? He's not advocating a works-based faith. He's saying if your faith doesn't result in works, it's not going to do anything. It invalidates the message rather than validates the message. And so, Christian, you are assigned to the world that God is real. As you live out your faith in the midst of good times, in the midst of bad times, when you, when you come and you find that someone has a need, a physical need, and you can meet it, and you do, that is when the, the truth of God's word and the message of the cross comes alive to people. Not only that, you are a sign of God's love. John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus said, um, a new command I give to you, love one another. By this, all men will know, all people will know that you love that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is what Jesus said. Your testimony, your life, your speech, your actions are all witnesses of who God is in this world. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter real quick. I want you to see this because this, this is what God says to us. Look, starting in verse 13. If you're still turning there, get there. Uh, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for actions, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our holiness ought to reflect, the way we live our life ought to reflect the holiness of God to this world. That's what Peter is saying. This is not only the basis of what Peter is saying here in the New Testament. It's also the basis of the law in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 11.44, God told the children of Israel, You be holy because I am holy. And so we are going to be used by God to validate the message of the cross. But we are also chosen by God. I want to read a passage to you from the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, 
Here's what God says to us through the Apostle Paul. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, there it is again, and blameless before him. So God has chosen us to be holy, just like 1 Peter says, but he's also chosen us to be blessed with all the spiritual blessings that we need in the heavenly places through Christ. And we are blessed, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus loved us. We are blessed, not because we did anything to earn it, but because of his grace. We have been chosen by God to be holy, not because we're all that in a bag of chips, but because of our connection to Jesus, not because we're even able to be holy, but because God and through his spirit is going to empower us to live the life that he wants us to live. Not only that, we have been chosen by God to be adopted into his family to be his sons and daughters, not because we were born into the family of Abraham, but because we were born again into the family of Jesus. Not because we are of noble blood, but because of the noble, holy, matchless, perfect blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so, friends, to wrap it up, about time, I know, I'm sorry. But to wrap it up, let me just challenge you today to think about, to encourage you as you put the kingdom of God first. God is going to use you and move you and put you in situations where your life, where your testimony, where your speech, where his, his work, in, even in your struggles and your difficulties, are going to proclaim that kingdom even more. And when we are faithful and when we are obedient and when we are saying, God, you are the king of my kingdom and my kingdoms are are secondary and less and, and not at all, I want your kingdom to come, then people are going to see who Jesus is and they are going to want to come and follow him. That is the challenge. That is that is the book of Haggai in a nutshell. You did it wrong, put me first. You put me first, now I'm going to bless. And when I bless, people are going to see that the kingdom of God needs to be first, and they'll put the kingdom of God first. And then more people will see it. (laughs) This is who we are called to be. And so will you answer the call this morning? I hope you will. Thank you for joining us for this week's message here at Corner Bible Church. If you would like more audio resources, please follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Or you can go online and visit us on our webpage at cornerbiblechurch.com.